Welcome back, everyone, to the On Relating Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Ginn, and today we have, I think it's a great interview with uh, Dr. Adam Dorsey. Uh, he's, he's a friend of mine uh, who lives down in San Jose, works with uh, mainly with men down there, uh, sees, sees all sorts of uh, men dealing with the challenges of of intense lives, you know, full-on full professional lives down there, and not really knowing how to navigate their emotional and relational lives very well. And he supports them, mentors them, and has grown in his efficacy. He also works with organizations, building more uh, resiliency in the organizations. And I uh, can't say enough about Adam. It's, you'll get a sense of him, super lighthearted, intelligent and uh, fun to talk fun to talk to uh, guy so without further ado Adam Dorsey welcome Adam Dorsey it's like so glad to be with you Ryan and looking yeah forward to this. yeah I'm, I'm glad we made it made it happen um, so just before we uh, jump in, love for you to just introduce yourself to the uh, to the audience here so they can get a little sense of you, where you're coming from. Yeah. So I'm a psychologist and I'm in private practice in San Jose, California, kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. I specialize in working with high functioning, high achieving adults uh, of the valley who often are coming in for the very first time for therapy. And I uh, have created... Resiliency programs, part of my background, my doctoral dissertation was all on positive psychological interventions to ameliorate conditions like uh, major depressive disorder. And uh, I have also a background in working with trauma, uh, although I don't focus on that now. So uh, Facebook called me a few years ago to help them set up a resiliency program for their counterterrorism and child safety teams. And I created uh, a program uh with them uh, and worked there for four years uh, part-time as, uh, as the kind of the coordinator and co-creator of a program called Project Reciprocity. And now I'm still doing that uh, with a security team in the digital space with DigitalOcean. I love what I do. Uh, I think I'm, I love it all the more because I came into it a little bit later in life. Uh, I've been in the corporate sphere for nearly two decades before transitioning out into psychology. Uh, one Friday, I was hired by a corporation with benefits, making good money. And then Monday after that, I had no benefits and I was making $10 an hour with a home equity line of credit and no license in sight for a while. Uh, and uh, it was a gutsy move. Um, but now I'm in a career that I absolutely adore. And uh, I guess last but not least, kind of a long-winded answer to your question, uh, I, uh, I now have a, a podcast called Super Psyched, and uh, I t its main focus is looking at psychology from as many perspectives as possible through the eyes of um, everybody from people in the profession to people way outside the profession talking about uh, psychological phenomena. And uh, last but not least, I, I gave a TEDx talk on men and emotions. So men are a particular focal point of mine. And I've got an amazing wife who's a psychologist and two fabulous sons. So I'm just a, I'm, I'm a happy camper. 
Yeah, man, you're you're sitting pretty. You're good. <laughs> I'm feeling. I'm, full, I'm really great. Full life. Yeah, yeah. All because uh, you listened to some voice inside of you that said, "Like, I, I don't want to be in this 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 corporate scene the, my whole life." I've done. I've. What was, was it? That you just kind of reached a just a, a. What was that? What was that moment like? I mean, I'm sure it was varying moments that led to the 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 eventual uh, power move there, but. Ryan, you couldn't be more right. It was various moments. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a psychologist, but I have the inattentive type of ADHD and I'm also dyslexic. So the academic burden was particularly hard in my 20s when I didn't quite have the organizational skills and the discipline to attend to it. Um, I got derailed. I ended up going to the corporate sphere a lot easier uh, and by dumb luck, I, by dumb luck, I ended up marrying a psychologist. Uh, by that time, I already had a master's in counseling, and every day I'd hear about her day, and I had these existential pangs, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm not going to get to do this in my lifetime. This is so painful." So it was partially that, you know, it was partially the aversion to the work I was doing, but less about that and more about feeling like I was missing out on something that I felt really called to do. And as it turns out, uh, I was in Hawaii visiting one of my best friends who was a psychologist. And I was reading Irvin Yalom's book, Love's, Ex Love's Executioner, where he describes what it's like really to be, a, 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 in his case, a psychiatrist providing psychotherapy. I'm reading it on a beach thinking, this is supposed to be my life. And... At some point, uh, it's a long and convoluted story, but I have a very supportive wife. Uh, and my friend was very supportive, too, who basically just pulled it out of me and said, dude, you've got to do this. I'm not going to let go of the topic. And my wife was similarly echoing that you've got to do this. I don't care if we take a financial hit. You've got to do this. And it was like a dog who's been wanting to take a walk for about two decades and you finally let the dog out the door. Mm. That's what I was like. I was just, mm. I was like the Tasmanian devil and that dog who's been hungering for a, a walk. I went through everything so quickly. I enjoyed every bit of the learning process. Uh, my colleagues sometimes were thinking, Oh gosh, the burden of work and homework and writing a dissertation. I enjoyed every, every second of it. I enjoyed every supervision hour. Um, and I continue to receive, um, consultation every week. I'm a total psych geek. So this is, this is working for me. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's a, it's like, it's a, it's a great story of, of, I mean, how that, no, just it's inspiring and uh i think maybe helpful to some some listeners out there that that are in that that place of you know well i've got a good job but you know i i'm i've always wanted to do such and such and you know it it um it does it well what i hear in that story is the 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 importance of having having allies that can, that can get your back, that can give you that nudge that can say, you've got to do this because making a choice on that, on your own, like that can be daunting. Entirely having that validation from people who know me well. Um, it's been said that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And thankfully I've surrounded myself with champions who really know me well 
and who are able to mirror me in an accurate manner. And I trusted that feedback I got from them. I also trusted the feedback I got uh, after I had my first son. Um, I was in the corporate sphere and I actually, I was so, so downtrodden. I had a, uh, what felt like a heart attack one night. And of course it was a panic attack um, over something I was avoiding. And uh, they say that most anxiety, if not all anxiety is the byproduct of avoidance of a thing. And I was avoiding the fact that I really wanted to be a therapist, but it was an inconvenient time in my life. I already had a child. I already had a house with a mortgage. I was married. I mean, what mother-in-law is going to say to their son-in-law, wow, I'm so glad that you've decided at this stage to, uh, you know, be so financially uh, ridiculous to go back to school and get paid $10 an hour. Um, so, uh, but it's, it was a lot like that. If you build it, he will come from field of dreams. It was a calling. And, uh, it took me several knocks at the door before I actually, uh, took action. And when I took action, it was a full body. Yes. All the way. And, and you, you've ended up really zeroing in on working with men. You know, and, and today, you know, I, I kind of want to just jump, jump to, uh, well, in a way kind of serving my, my listenership, which at least from what I can tell, really, really are always wanting both the men themselves, you know, but all, and also, well, everybody else that are relating to these men, like yeah. they're all, they're all wanting some help, um, some wisdom, you know, uh, some frameworks for how to host, like how to host, I'm constantly kind of refining this question, but I, where I'm at with it right now is like how to host the, the male, um, emotional reality, mm-hmm. you know, the, whether you want to call that maybe, um, uh, suffering you know the the suffering the the common 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 forms of suffering that that many men in this in this world in our particular kind of culture live in um, yeah so how to how to host it as an ally how to how to support how to support them to move move through and out of emotional suffering and into into health you know into vibrancy into true uh true strength right not that that identification with the strength that's like uh, well i'm doing all my work so back the fuck off Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah this is a long you know little primer of a question for you sure i mean there are just so many smoking guns in terms of why this is the reality and uh we were not really encouraged uh, as children, at least in my generation, to foster the tools that we need to do the kind of spelunking into our souls that we would serve us long term. It's not convenient to do oftentimes because attending to our emotions, who wants to do that? I mean, they might tell they might give us some really important feedback that seems very inconvenient at the time to deal with. Why not just stuff it down? That's what I've always done. Uh, why not just compartmentalize it? And we wonder why we're suffering physiologically. I mean, we somaticize and we have difficulty sleeping. We have GI issues. We have back pain um, by stuffing these things down. Uh, very often a person will come to my office presenting with physiological symptoms with no known medical cause. And lo and behold, after talking, those symptoms remit. 
Um, and let's face it, we're just not encouraged as men to do that. Um, Brene Brown talks about it extensively, including one of the descriptors of um, a wife who wants her man to ride the horse, but not fall off. That she didn't even have space for her husband to fall off the horse. And uh, I'm depicting it imperfectly. Uh, I'm trying to paraphrase her descriptor, but um, I find that really, really sad um, to think about uh, how we are supposed to be, how we believe we're supposed to be, um, and how externally reinforced uh, those messages can be and how misguided those messages really are that in order for us to really claim our masculinity, we need to listen into our emotions. Uh, ancient samurai identified with fear. They knew that fear was actually a good thing to be able to harness. Um, sadness, being able to allow it to course through us. Um, Captain Phillips described, uh, after, I remember an interview that he had, I believe with Terry Gross on NPR, he was describing the trauma that he experienced uh, when he was hijacked by pirates and how important it was for him to connect emotionally with the trauma itself and to release it. And uh, they're just infinite examples of how we live fuller lives. And I very frequently get calls from wives of men I see saying something akin to, hey, you know, Dr. Dorsey, I'm so glad that my husband's seeing you. I know you can't respond to this voicemail, but thank you for giving me this, this version of him. He's, he, I, 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 I've fallen in love with him all over. And uh, there's, there's a lot to be said for healthfully harnessing our emotions and finding really good ways to process them, to talk them out, rather than to, of course, act them out. Or act them in. Right. Right. Unco right. Go, to go, to go un unconscious or to let them, um, take over in, in ways that aren't true to, true to like the, the deeper intentions that, that most men have. Cause when I, you know, what always strikes me working with men is that there's, they can say, right. They can say what they want. They want to be there for their wife. You know, they want to be a good father. They want, they want to be more uh, able to listen in the workplace, all these things that they want. But then there's these, these hat, these habits that you're kind of these, um, these, these tendencies to, to shut down emotion. And if you're shut down in emotion, there's no, there's no ability to do those complex things because they're very, uh, they, they demand a lot of, 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 of emotional awareness, right. To be able to listen well, you have to actually be tracking like, what is, what is the emotional response that's going on inside of me? Right. What, what, right. What's what, right. It's, Cause you, 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 say, I look you have to look at the dashboard. Right. And if you're, you know, because I mean, I think that's a great example as I see, um, like we're, I'm thinking of working with couples sometimes and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's all stereotypes, it's generalizations, but just seems very common, right? That the, that the male would be like, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> I, I'm listening. I hear your words, <laughs> but there, there's, there's so much going on emotionally that they're not even aware of really. 
Um, they might just kind of be feeling the, um, the, the sim- symptomology, right. That just the, the tip of the iceberg of like tension or, um, ang- you know, often it's just anger, protectiveness, and there's this whole, whole thing going on. Totally. That they're Physical managing, sense. right. And other resources, right. Neurobiological, all the resources are going in, you know, is, are being devoted to containing all of that. So then they're not able to be present and actually listen right to the other. Totally. So, and, and it's, and, it, and we haven't really been taught how to do that well. And the good news is it's not as hard as people imagine it will be to get at least decent at doing it. Of course, I'm still a work in progress uh, with my wife as my witness. I'm still working and so are you. Yeah. So you just raised your hand. Um, and, you know, just my own arc in terms of becoming a psychologist and not wanting to listen to my emotional realities uh, and just really stuffing it down, which manifested for me in a panic attack and a host of other symptoms physiologically. I mean, my God. Uh, it was it was a mess during that time. I was not a happy camper. What do you find is the as you you know? It's been years now. You're working with a lot of men, and it's like I'm sure you're kind of refining your methodology in terms of of uh, in a sense, kind of like midwifing them from a place of real shutdown um, and dis you know disassociation or distraction, and into a place of actually. Um, meeting their their emotional and uh psychic experience like where wh- wh- where are you at i mean that's a general question but i'm just kind of curious if you, you're writing at something that's um more simple in a sense like yeah if you could re-articulate the question i'm not entirely sure how to answer sure yeah, i'm just imagining you've worked with men all these years and and I'm, I'm imagining that you've, that you, that you're, that you've arrived at some, some kind of simple frameworks for helping, helping them move from a place of, of shutdown kind of right. disassociation Got it. and into a place of more aliveness and communicativeness with their, with, the, with their others in their life. Got it. So yeah, there's a really fancy word in psychology that, uh, it's called alexithymia, which actually means the inability to articulate one's feelings. And I just love that word uh, because it makes me sound so smart when I say it. But um, uh, the experience of alexithymia is prevalent. And that's often how people will show up in an alexithymic state, the inability to really articulate their emotional states. And your term midwife is a term I use a lot about myself uh, by just merely reflecting back and helping them come up with a, uh, a taxonomy, an, an ability to name their emotions. That's stage one. Well, stage one is actually feeling them in their body. Uh, and then the ability to name, to put a name to it. And as we get better at attending to that emotional reality, they start volunteering uh, over time, their ability to say something. One of the hardest things to do is to be able to identify their feelings in the uh, presence of another because there's so much anxiety uh, co-occurring with this new newfound skill. And it tends to be easier to just kind of revert to not feeling one's feelings in the presence of another. 
when anxiety goes up, uh, emotional regulation and intellectual functioning goes down. And it's really important for them to learn how to just kind of breathe and be with their truth in the face of another. And that is really, really hard to do. That's kind of next level skill that happens um, and the ability to really, really own them. Um, so I've come up with kind of a, <laughs> a rather simple uh, uh, acronym FIP, feel, identify and process. So the, just feel the feels first, identify it and find a way to healthfully process the feels. And, uh, you know, we've all developed healthy and unhealthy coping strategies around feelings. Some of us like to numb out with just going on to social media or drinking or, um, you know, watching something to distract us. Um, and that's okay. Sometimes, I mean, we can't really be with our feelings all the time, but as a go-to, as an automatic response, universally, it's going to lead to lots and lots of problems in relationships and uh, in relationship to ourself, um, which are really the two most important things I can think of in the world, our relationship to ourself and our relationship to others. And that's corroborated by, you know, all types of, you know, physical, I mean, medical science, as well as uh, psychological uh, studies. We really need to be in good relationship with us, ourselves and we need to be in good relationships with others. And what's primary is being able to ultimately midwife our own feelings and, and try to find healthy ways to process them. Yeah. And that's a, that is quite, quite the journey, right? Because like you, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, right. It's, um, it's not something, it's not something we're taught, right. It's not, you know, it's not something we're modeled as, as men commonly, right. To, to actually, and, and honestly, like a lot of, a lot, a lot of women too. I mean, it, you think about the educational system, right. And the lack of, lack of, uh, ref, what, what we now know is, is essential to brain development, like re reflective, empathetic, um, re, re, um, relating on the, on the part of, um, teachers, right. Not something I experienced a lot of, Right. So then that the whole the whole feeling domain is just sort of uh, implicit, implicit, implicitly denied um, and not developed. And then we enter enter adulthood and workplaces are also implicitly denying that reality. Um, just listen to Simon Sinek, who is just great way of describing like what that does to a person in terms or uh, like, a, you know, this younger generation that's basically being asked to, you know, there's a constant threat that they're going to be, um, fired. Right. And so why would they share that they're scared about, or, or, uh, that, about something, or why would they share that they've just, uh, made a mistake? You know, basically why would they bring any vulnerability? Because that would just, you know, put a target on their head. Um, so just, <laughs> just kind of reinforcing this whole, this whole idea that, that this is a lot, it's, it's a lot for us to develop um, later in life. And it's, it's quite the thing to midwife. And, um, and yet I think I see a revolution happening. You're kind of, you're kind of, you're part of it. You're mentioning Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, like um, there's a lot of, and, and there's amazing neuroscientists that are, that are, that are really reinforcing all of this. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of going off. <laughs> As I hear you talk, yeah. Ryan, you know, I'm actually filled with a lot of hope because Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, and the curriculum, even at my son's schools has been far more, uh, conscious in integrating social emotional learning and I'm looking at my sons and the way they and of course they're the beneficiaries of being the children of two psychologists who talk about feelings every night we we talk about a rosebud and a thorn every night so during dinner we have to bring like a rose like what was good today what did we learn today is the bud and what was our thorn what hurt today um, but these are being reinforced within the curriculum in the school and the power of Brene Brown uh, and her message really getting out in the, in the zeitgeist. She has basically said, and I agree wholly that we are only as courageous as we are able to be vulnerable, that all courage stems from our capacity to be vulnerable and authentic. And I just think that's, uh, that's, that's good medicine. it's it's the yeah it's 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 to me it's it's like the the medicine of our uh, i mean i don't want to get too grandiose but it's 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 a it's a huge missing piece as i reflect on my own life um you know how many how many of my like quantum leaps in my life occurred through through a vulnerable step through a vulnerable conversation right like I, I couldn't have done it if I was sticking my guns, you know, and, and relying on my more protective parts, right. That were, you know, for me, it's, I don't know, it's just being, you know, being pleasing or being, um, you know, going with somebody else's agenda. Um, so that leads me to this other, this, I don't know, it's, it's a point slash question, that I, I guess I'm, I'm uh, asking it or, or speaking to it on behalf of the men that there's a, there's this counter narrative out there that, um, is present in, um, as I, as I hear it in different male circles, that's like, there's this, uh, what we call it, in, uh, emasculation, right. Of, of men happening with all of this emphasis on vulnerability and emotions and, um, and not, you know, not being threatening with your, with your, with your, you know, your privileged, aggressive maleness, right? <laughs> right. And so I'm hearing, it's, you know, it's a part that lives in me and it's, and it's a, and it's a voice that lives in the culture right now that is pushing back against it. And I, I'll, I'll answer it first, and I'd love for you to answer it too. But, but my answer is that actually, in my experience and what I'm seeing in, in different men's work and um, like real men's work, is that actually that's 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 actually the opposite of the the impact when when there is a commitment to the full acceptance and um, expression and exploration of all of our emotions, we actually become more truly masculine. Like my anger is real. My anger is coming. If it's, if it's true anger, it's coming from my heart. It's not coming from a blamey victimy place. Right. It's coming from anger. Like I'm standing up for something. Yep. Um, and there's maybe some tears with it, but it's my back. I got a backbone behind it. Um, so 
that's up, you know, I guess it's just up for me these days because I hear that pushback and I just want to speak to it and sure. love, love you to speak to it as well. Well, all you need to do is look at organizational science and it's fairly clear the most humble of leaders tend to get the best results for organizations and the ones who are dominating and perhaps uh, narcissistic get very bad results overall. Oddly enough, we've been, you know, sold a bridge that doesn't exist. Uh, the, we, we tend to fall prey to thinking, oh, wow, this is a dominating, powerful, confident individual. Let's have this person be CEO rather than the person who's actually this kind of the servant leader. And one of the kind of developing uh, areas in leadership is the servant leader who might be male and might be very able to harness his masculinity, but does it from a place of being a servant. And the most masculine people I know are those who are well integrated. They are able to talk about a whole spectrum uh, of things. If you're looking at the, the colors uh, uh, that exist on the spectrum, they're not just limited to traditional male topics. They're not just limited to sports, technology, politics. These are safe areas for guys to typically talk about. They're able to get vulnerable and be real and be authentic, full-bodied. And that is what I'm hoping will become the new version of masculinity, not walking around with swagger. Swagger is actually a dangerous thing because it is fundamentally fake. I'm not saying to not walk with confidence. I'm not saying to walk with some, you know, charisma and some uh, embodiment. Those are good. Yeah. Keep those alive. I'm talking about walking around like you've really got it and hiding it from everyone else and being a shell of a person. Then again, and on the other side of things, there is the idea of fake it until you become it. And for people who don't have confidence, it's a good idea to look at a paragon of confidence and become it and have a safe place to talk about. Oh, my God, I was so scared when I was trying to, like, be confident in that interview or in that big talk that I was giving. And uh, these are not mutually exclusive propositions. We're not asking people to have the rough equivalent of a surgical something of something ectomy. <laughs> uh, anything that ends in ectomy is the cutting off of something. We're not asking for a masculine ectomy. We're asking for a more full-bodied approach to masculinity, and everyone benefits when that happens. Um, I'm just going to cite one other piece of neurophysiological research because I'm such a geek and I love this stuff. Um, I mean, you think about Phineas Gage, the guy who ended up with a bar in his prefrontal cortex. Uh, well, actually, in his limbic system, he was unable to feel. And Anthony Damasio out of MIT has shown that if you remove our emotional centers, people cannot make decisions. We, we just literally cannot make decisions. And the more emotionally attuned we are, the better our decisions will be. The chief complaint I see in my office is, I married poorly. I knew I shouldn't have married her or I knew I shouldn't have married him, but I didn't listen. And lo and behold, we've got, you know, a custody battle or we've got alcoholism or exacerbated alcohol abuse. 
Um, so the, this proposition that you're creating, Ryan, of, of, of having a more full-bodied masculine experience, um, I'm 100% behind it. Beautiful. Yeah. And to, and to get a little bit in, like a little bit in the weeds there, but I think it'd be, you'd think it's such a valuable little, uh, uh, exploration, uh, is you, you brought up, you know, uh, the, the necessity of knowing how you feel in, in, in regards to decision-making process, say, and I'm not pushing back as much as I'm as, as, as much as I, I'm, wanting maybe for the listeners to, to, to get a little bit more um, clarity around there's around the fact that, that we have different parts of ourselves. Like you interviewed yep. Dick Schwartz, right? A founder of IFS, right? Internal Great family guy. system, right? There's, we, we can end up feeling something based upon a part of us that's saying, you know, that has a story going, right? Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, and, and people can live like lifetime, you know, certainly like epochs of their life guided by a part and th- that part's feelings, right? Based upon that part's perception of reality. And just wondering how you you know, work with, you know, cause I can imagine some, whatever, you know, CEO coming into your office and being so fused with, with a part of him that wants to be, uh, in control, want, wants to be seen as fully capable. And so much of his feelings are based upon that, that fusion with that part of him. So wondering if you've got an example or anything that comes to mind to help kind of elucidate this Sure. Yeah. So you're talking about story, you're talking about parts and, you know, there are good narratives, uh, narratives, for example, knowing uh, kind of to quote my Angelo, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you're from. So there's, there's good story, um, knowing about your ancestors, but hopefully not being trapped by said story. If you have a narrative that traps you, like the CEO that you might be describing, I, I, the only way I'm allowed to be, the only way I'm I could possibly comport myself is in the role of dominant leader in all places at all times, or I'm not allowed to show weakness anywhere, anytime. Uh, These are prisons of our own creation. And the goal is to really uh, bring in something uh, in psychology called more kind of cognitive flexibility, the ability to do yoga with our brains to actually allow for our stories to stretch, allow for uh, perhaps our stories to actually be extinguished or put to the side and say, yes, I used to believe this, but now I'm beginning to see that, you know, I don't have to just do this. And in fact, just doing things as I've done them uh, is yielding horrible results in every area of my life. There are places perhaps to use uh, this tool to, uh, to foster uh, that form of uh, behavior, but uh, to make it all day, all the time uh, will probably be uh, toxic for everyone. <laughs> right. And I'm imagining, I mean, that that's where, that, I mean, those are the folks that are, that are showing up right in your office often are, are those that are, 
they're they're intelligent and they're they're looking at they've got some self-reflection or maybe it's an external reflection that's saying okay i've been doing this thing for a long time and it's it and it's just and it's reaping the, the, these, these negative, my, you know, maybe my, my wife is just, uh, fed up with me and, uh, doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. Or, uh, my, uh, my employees are giving me these, like these really, um, negative, uh, this negative feedback. Totally. Uh, and I don't know what, what am I doing wrong? Exactly. Right? I think I'm showing up great. I, you know, I, right. I, I don't get it, but, yeah. the, but, feedback happening around them and they're just like well, what's happening totally it's, it's like having spinach on your teeth or having your zipper down and you just don't even know it and i remember the very first time i as a public speaker saw myself on video and i was appalled i i, I was doing everything wrong and we don't know we don't see our blind spots and what's great about having a really safe space in a you know in a, in a psychotherapy practice is we have the option to really unpack it and receive different feedback uh, about new feedback about old behaviors. And I call it kind of like, you know, a shoe shopping experience. Like, huh, are these the shoes that you really want to wear full time, all the time, every time? Um, is this going to really allow you to take the long trek that you're trying to take? Uh, or are you actually going to, you know, blow out your knee along the way? <laughs> Metaphorically, I use a lot of metaphor in my work. Um, and to use yet another metaphor, I mean, what could be manlier than, so to speak, than, than getting different tools? We're, we are retooling the CEO who was insufferable to his employees by giving him a, just a chance to get off his high horse and just take a look around and say, am I going in the right direction or am I actually heading off a cliff? And it's that humility that's really, really scary. And it's in you and I have both probably done it a lot. I'm guessing just based on who you are, a lot of shadow work, trying to identify the parts of ourselves that we'd rather avoid that may show up in dreams or that may come back in some feedback from another person because they can see it. Um, but we disavow it. We say it's not really there. Um, and that's, where all the rich stuff is to borrow and poorly paraphrase a Jungian quote, we do not become enlightened or see the light by staying in the light. We have to really muddle around in the dark and get to know the dark spaces well. And that's yet another great thing about doing either a men, men's work, like what you're doing in a group setting or individual psychotherapy. Uh, this is uh, you know, and we're so fortunate that we're living in a time that, the stigma around therapy is being greatly reduced. And it's my hope that people really on a large scale begin to just see it as, yeah, I go to my personal trainer, I go to the gym, I go to my therapist for my psychic workout. And um, so it is hard work. Um, it can be painful, but it is ultimately so freeing. Right. Yeah. I, I'm sold. Um <laughs> I mean, and, but it, it, when you say that, you know, it just really uh, makes me think of how the, the reason why too, or just the evolution of psychotherapy, you know, like it's, it comes from this medical model and it's so ridden with like, oh, if you've got depression or anxiety or you just lost, you know, you lost your temper. Oh, I've got to, you know, 
you know, even the fact that it's billed by, you know, insurance. Well, I mean, that's great on some level because it can be paid for, but on another level, it's like, I mean, don't we, don't we all, I mean, every, I believe everybody needs, you know, some support, like some undivided, um, you know, trained support, whether that's, you know, whether you want to call it coaching or therapy to be able to get a better sense of our shadows, to get a better sense of like why we're stuck, why we keep replaying a different pattern that continually leads to suffering. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think I, I feel like we are fortunate that the stigma is, is slowly fading away and we're, we're developing a more just honestly, I think a just more uh, sober or um, it's just down to earth, like recognition that humble recognition that, everybody needs some that 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 kind of support periodically or ongoingly yeah i couldn't agree um, more. i couldn't agree more and, and coming back there's something i wanted to oh do you have a, do you have an example of like you know even if you if you want to change some of the this identifying information but kind of you know an example of of what it looks like for for in this case say a man to kind of come in with that with that experience of like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So often, you know, I, I, I'm, I, this is not going to be uh, any particular person. This is more of a composite of like a well over a dozen people, but on the first phone call, uh, they'll say, you know, my wife says I need this. You know, my colleague says I need this. I don't really want to come. I don't necessarily believe in this crap. Uh, and it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, and I will ask them something akin to what would it look like if we really, you know, rocked it, if we had a really good working relationship, what would some of the results be? And the most frequent answer is I have no idea. I don't even know. So we're starting there, and I am also very much aware uh, in in the first session very often that they are scrutinizing me head to toe every little thing I say because their skepticism is so high that this talking thing will actually work. And what do we know about therapy? Well, there are about 600 known modalities of psychotherapy everything from cognitive behavioral therapy to psychoanalytic therapy. And yet it's the quality of the relationship between the two people in the room that matters most. And so from the client's end, particularly according to Dan Siegel, who's the father of a fancy term called interpersonal neurobiology, where uh, these two brains kind of are having a mind meld, like on Star Trek. Um, is that happening? Does the, person who's receiving therapy feel understood, really deeply understood. And if the therapist is ethical, the therapist should be asking him or herself, is this person sitting in front of me shopping in the right store? Do I have what the person sitting in front of me needs? And I usually say it takes between one and three sessions to mutually assess the fit. Sometimes it takes longer. Um, but on average, when I ask, when I check in at around minute 40, of session one, how is this feeling? Like this is a, your first time talking in this way. 
And it's almost invariably the first time in therapy. They say, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I, 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 I think I like it. <laughs> uh, is that weird? They might even ask. And uh, I say, no, that's actually a good sign. And on average, uh, you know, I've, I've done a good job screening the person over the phone uh, to make sure that I think in all likelihood it will be a fit because I don't want anybody to come in and I, I, I want to reduce the likelihood of somebody coming in and, and it not being a match um, because that can be really um, discouraging. Uh, but I have no compunctions about saying to the client, if I don't think, uh, he or she is, is a good fit that I, I think I know someone who might be a better match. Um, but to your point also about the medical model, um, you know, when I was starting out, uh, there was that whole debate, do you call the person who's seeing you a patient or a client? And I didn't like either term at all. Uh, they both felt in effect, they both, they both had patient felt pathologizing client felt monetizing. Uh, I've ultimately come around to saying the people or the person I see is so they are people (laughs) I see. Uh, and I, and I like that. And so just kind of shying away from the medical model. I I know that if they're going to seek reimbursement, I need to put a diagnosis and I'm accurate in my diagnostic abilities, but I don't see them as diagnoses. I see them as really amazing individual people who are all, you know, trying to adapt, um, to this thing called life and hopefully harness life, you know, before we die. So that this gap between our birth date and our death date is, is not for naught, that it's something that is, uh, that we can say we were there while we were, while we were here, while we were here. And what I hear in that too, is you're helping them imagining you really helping them also take stock or really honor the, the, all the adaptations, the, well, the, you know, the skills that they developed to make it as where they, to get where they got, you know, because sometimes they does that, you know, there, there's such a, maybe they're getting a lot from their wife or whatever. There's just such a focus on, on, uh, on where they're not showing up or their, their so-called deficiencies. Um, rather, rather than recognizing, yeah, all these amazing strengths that they did develop. Yeah. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge, uh, those parts. I mean, you talked about Dick Schwartz earlier and how important it is to identify, you know, to really acknowledge those parts that have helped us cope through various tough times. Um, and even if we need to perhaps retire that part, to give that part a really nice retirement party uh, with acknowledgement for everything that that part has done for us, even though we are now going to uh, improve the firmware or the software uh, or the hardware, uh, so to speak. Um, to how have you how, how have you done? So I'm imagining you know you're you're drawing on your own personal experience of such a thing. Like, what's your own? What's this example of your own your own? your own, uh, your own personal version of that. Yeah. So let's say somebody has really been able, grew up in a house where they were surrounded by (sighs) profound dysfunction. And they, the only way they could survive was through skepticism and they had to become skeptical. And that became their go-to for everything. 
And we know that skepticism can be very, very helpful at times. And it's a good tool in the toolbox, but it's, it's the tool for everything. Life is going to be a lot harder. And in this case, we don't necessarily retire the skeptical part, but we say, you know, we are going to find times when this skeptical part of you gets to really show up and other times when the skeptical part of you maybe needs to sit back for a second um, and, and really take in what's happening with an open heart and so that we can really more fully receive life. Um, you know, the skeptic who hears from his wife, you know, I love you. And he's not able to take that in and give her a receipt back and say, Oh, sweetie, you do love me. Instead, he thinks, Oh yeah, sure. But it's just a, it's just a matter of time before the next few drops. That's not a very satisfying interpersonal exchange. Uh, in fact, it's heartbreaking to the wife who right. never feels the echoing of, of the love that she feels for her, her husband because he kind of rolls his eyes. What if he was able to sit back and open his heart and actually experience the possibility, in fact, the probability, or in fact, the reality that his wife does love him. And so much so that he's able to say back, instead of I love you too, you love me. And receipt her. That's that's a big thing when that when something like that happens and we're able to maybe downsize that part of ourselves, the skeptical part that's been so crucial for everything we've done, so that we can live life more fully and see the colors on the on the spectrum. Um, what do we know at the end of life? Uh, we know that people regret uh, leaving love on the table. In addition to regretting not having taken chances, and it seems that nobody really regrets their failures. They regret not having taken chances and they regret having left love on the table. And so the skeptic is basically buying an insurance policy against having that deathbed experience of saying, oh my gosh, my wife actually did love me and I never let her know and I never let myself know. Yeah, it's like a, sad you're right it's very it's really sad yeah how how that happens so um hmm. just kind of in unconsciously involuntarily you know based upon you know because we now know you know i mean people especially probably you know very competent men don't like to think that they're still running conditioning that was instilled when they were one two three four five years old Absolutely. Right. But that is when, you know, the, the, the basic sense of reality is, is impressioned, right? On that so super plasticky brain that's just basically taking cues, to just absorbing all of the implicit definitions of reality, right? Basically, like in this case, like uh, you, the, the, the people that are in charge of you don't, aren't really safe or your emotions aren't really okay with them, whether, you know, whether it's maybe even just your, uh, your sadness isn't okay with them. So you need to, all, all of these different messages, everyone has their own, their own combination. Right. Um, but yeah, so sad to not 
be able to really realize that 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 conditioning is still still operating. And, you got it. And you know, I, I, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about awe, A W E, the experience of being awestruck. A uh, colleague and friend of mine, Jonah Paquette, wrote a book called Awestruck, and our abilities to experience life and to be awestruck may be the most important things that we can ever experience. You you live in Oregon, not very far away from where the eclipse took place a few years ago. And what happens when we're awestruck? We are more emotionally available. Um, In fact, if you were to look at the brains of a person who's experiencing awe, they are experiencing life maybe at the fullest level. Uh, Strangers hug strangers. Uh, We become more community oriented. We become more generous. And if you look at brain scans of people who are experiencing the effects of psilocybin and the experience uh, versus the experience of awe, they're very similar without any of the side effects of psilocybin. So um, one of the things that we're talking about here, you and I are setting up the brain so that we're more likely to experience the, the, the awesomeness, the awestruck, we're more likely to be awestruck by life. Uh, when we see our babies crawl for the first time, when we see a sunset, that's gorgeous. When we hear music that just entirely blows our minds and bodies away. When we, uh, are in the presence of a magical moment and are able to see the sacredness of it. We can be awestruck and that skepticism really shows up. It's almost like a little internal Larry David, which is funny on, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm, but I don't want that to be showing up when I'm awestruck or when I'm in a moment of great love or when my heart is just broken open and I'm listening to uh, music that really works for me. Um, And that for me actually did not come easily. Um, I had a, chip away a lot of calcified matter mm-hmm. to allow myself to feel into that stuff. Um, and I'm so grateful. And my, my sons now, you know, get to see a father who does that <laughs> experiences that. And uh, I, 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 I'm loving who my sons are becoming. Um, not all the time, obviously I'm, you know, they're, 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 they're kids. They're imperfect, but but in the balance of things, I'm just super stoked about who they are. Um, and I know that a lot of that has been because of the hard work I've done a lot. I mean, I didn't just become a psychologist because, uh, I wanted to help people and not myself. I, I've done a lot of work. I've been in men's groups for years. I've done a lot of my own individual psychotherapy couples work. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been very helpful to, um, chiseling away my calcified parts. So that you can write experience at least something on the spectrum of that. What you're calling awe. Yeah. It's like, I see it as also just, um, turning off the, the automating brain. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's so cool. Right. Like how like the neurobiology is starting to really reinforce these, like used to be called kind of spiritual practices or whatever. But really what we're, we're talking about is like, and it has to be an active practice, right? Because, because if we don't actually intend to be present and actually really consider like, 
like looking at our, you know, our partner say, like, I try to do this periodically where I'm just like, who is she? You know, just like, uh-huh. what is, you know, cause it, otherwise if I don't do that in, you know, as a practice, my brain's just going to automate her and be like, yeah, I know you didn't like, she's, mm-hmm, that's, that's her or my child, you know, my daughter, you know, like, okay, yeah, she's, we come up with these stories involuntarily, like, oh yeah, she's just, she's playing in her play kitchen. But if I pause and I'm like, what is she like getting into her world? And like, you know, like the other day she was making, she's making these rag dolls. She's just turned six and she's sewing these rag dolls from scratch, like her, you know, from these different fabrics, you know, and, and if I'm not watching that automating part of me, I'm going to miss that opportunity to be in awe and be like, wow, look at you. Like you're making this, like, I don't know how to do that. And here you are, you're, you're stitching on these little, like the hair and <laughs> you would have missed that on life. I would have missed that on life, you know, and that, you know, and, and we're talking about like opening your heart. I mean, it's a, it's a very real experience. You know, I know the, the listeners that are more like, I don't know, uh, rigorous in their thinking and so forth. I honor that. I'm, I try to be rigorous too, but there's a very real experience that call it what you will is, is essential to the human condition for our happiness and satisfaction, which is, this is, we're calling it, you know, being in awe, being, Oh, you know, having our heart opened, you know, having a little bit of, or a lot of, um, of, uh, like, uh, of, of being stopped in your own individual storyline and being impacted by, Totally. I like, and and you're talking about, you know, I love that you're bringing that up. You know, when we're the default network is really important for our survival. And yet if we live there all the time, it's, uh, it's not a great place. The other night I was sitting outside with my son, I was, uh, doing some emails on my phone and my little son said, daddy, come over here. And I was in the middle of an email and it kind of took me out of my, my days and I was actually a little annoyed, like, hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of something, dude. Um, but I overrode it. And I thought, son's calling. He's 11. He's calling me over. I'm going. And I said, what, what, sweetie? And he said, look up. And I said, okay. And he said, look at that full moon. Isn't that great? I would have missed that. Mm-hmm. And I went right out of the default network, right into awe. And there was a magical moment and they're, they're everywhere. If we look for them, if we want to experience them and uh, it's my hope and my belief that if more people were more regularly able to access that people would be kinder in traffic, people would be nicer. Uh, I know we're in COVID, uh, but when we have our interpersonal exchanges, even via zoom, uh, awe is, a really great place to be. Yeah, it's, it's connect, you know, what I, what I, uh, sense when I sense into it, you know, it, it also includes a sense of that sense of humility of, of actually giving yourself permission or encouragement to, to not know, right. To not do totally know what's happening yes you know it has a certain vulnerability and like 
you know, especially maybe for men, like you're, you come up against a part that thinks you should know what's happening or, and just to be in that, like, I don't know, what is that? Like how, like to be in that child, like the gift of that, you know, having a child's like, look at the moon. The, the child has less of a sense of like, oh yeah, that's the moon. I know that it's this so many <laughs> from the, from the, from the earth and it revolves, you know, has this whole story, but. Dude, no, totally. Like that sense of wonder and curiosity and the willingness to hit the refresh button on our browser of life, you know, just the willingness to say, hey, I've seen this a thousand times, a million times. I'm going to see it in a new way. Wouldn't that isn't wouldn't that be a great skill to have on the regular? Um, You know, everybody from Leonardo da Vinci uh, has to any reasonable scientist to artist would know that wonder and curiosity and cultivating that space. Oh my God. It's so wonderful. Uh, Bad pun, but it's wonderful. (laughs) It is. is. Yeah. I share that same, you know, I honestly share that same wish share, you know, share it for myself because I honestly see it, you know, because I can just see it in myself, you know, having the conditioning I have that it's a, it ends up, you know, being a, it's a constant, maybe say less constant now for me, but it, it, it's a constant um, practice or intention setting, right? Totally. Like as I, come, as I come into the space, I have to catch myself not being in my own narrative of like what, what I want from, you know, what, what, uh, who they are. Like, I mean, there's, there's so many things that just, like you said, just that, that, that just set into place. And if, if I, if I don't catch them, then, um, the quality, the quality of this next moment that awaits me on the other side of that door is going to be really compromised, you know, and is eventually the thing of it is that, you know, just to speak to what this point earlier around like male, you know, male depression or, or, um, dissatisfaction in life like that, that's actually the eventual consequence. Cause you, you, if you move through life, like with, with this sense of like groundhog day and like, like you, you basically kind of know who you are, basically who you are, who everybody else is. It's so fucking boring, actually. It's so, exactly. it's so uh, lacking heart or wonder, and and it eventually does lead to the experience of depression. And back to you know what we men are allowed to feel conventionally. One of the things that we're actually denied is joy, and. If you think about great moments um, on TV, in my case, uh, things like Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. receiving the Academy Award or uh, uh, Benini receiving his Academy Award or, uh, you know, Tony Robbins jumping up and down on the stage. Um, real masculine figures in embracing joy fully. Mm-hmm. That is a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it would be my wish that, uh, you know, great athletes are able to have a long half-life for joy when they experience something wonderful. Uh, and that, because very often the half-life of a victory is actually very small. And then we kind of revert back to the default network. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't it be great if we were able to look at tiny victories in life on the regular or re-experience a victory. Why, why does it have to have be terminal? Um, I just bought a, a new, I bought a, I just bought a, a, a car for the first time in 
a long time. And I've dedicated myself to every time that I turn on the ignition to loving the crap out of this car, being super stoked about this car because I don't want the new car smell to erode. I want to be grateful every time I hit the ignition on that car. It's a conscious choice, but it is actually becoming a default. And uh, in spite of the fact that it's becoming something of a default, it's not automated in the sense that I don't feel it. Um, I uh, uh, almost settled on a different colored car, but my mother-in-law very wisely said, your heart should jump a bit. So don't settle. Uh, she, she, she'd heard me over the phone. I, I was talking to my wife who was at my mother-in-law's house. I said, I'm just going to go with the gray car, but I really wanted the blue and they just didn't have it. And my mother-in-law said, go somewhere else and try to find the blue because you want your heart to jump a little bit every time you see it. And of course I was in automated mode. I was just getting stuff done. I was like, I'm just going to buy this car and just be done. But no, I'm going to, I, I, I'm glad that I went the extra mile and, uh, my heart jumps a little bit every time I see the car. <laughs> she was right. That's, awesome. That's a great example. I had a similar experience last week. Like, uh, I was feeling a lot of joy. Like I had moved through some kind of legal issue and I was like really relieved and I was really feeling into like my, my true power of like my resiliency, like wow, I can, I can handle like a, somewhat, you know, anxiety producing legal issue and, uh, went to REI and I like, I found, you know, I've been, you know, I, I typically go to like kind of try and find me something like Goodwill or the secondhand outdoor store. And I'm like, going to REI, I need a jacket. I need a jacket. I like, I'm not, a, not, not only, not only that I like, but I love totally you know, that jacket and like the right fit. And there's, you know, it's, it's, there's a difference between a kind of material, like it's not materialism. It's like a, it's like, it can be this kind of ceremonial thing. It's like, um, d doing those things that are really symbolic of a certain kind of, 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 of self-love or, or joy or, you know, and so it's a nice segue into something I wanted to touch in, uh, to explore with you. And, and that is like this, since we're talking about men, we can kind of confine it to, to, to men, but this, um, this question of, you know, what does it look like to be it, I see it as finding those like high impact, um, activities, uh, and practices that, that really rejuvenate. Totally. Self. You know, and yeah. being conscious of it, right? And yeah. being, you know, following it's a combination of one's own like kind of intuition, feeling, and and a certain amount of courage involved too, to be able to be like because oftentimes it actually is doing something that's maybe a little bit uncomfortable, a little counter what what which just feels like sort of the standard, like I'm just gonna sit and watch the Netflix and think that that could be re rejuvenating. Um so I'd love to hear you talk about um what it looks like for, for men to develop a truly rejuvenative, you know, um, set of practices. In their life. Well, first, before I even go there, I just want to just totally give you props for the REI experience. That was not just retail therapy. That was a ritual. That was like something like out of the Bible of, you know, Joseph in his coat of many colors, like putting it on, you were, you were finding a way to like, create a, you know, a, a protective, uh, 
second skin that was going to be a part of you. It sounded like, mm-hmm. I maybe maybe overflowing it. It felt no, it's over like that. Right, yeah. Heading into winter, it's like, I'm not. Mm-hmm. but to your point about rejuvenation, uh, this is something I've taken great interest in. And what we found is that if we can do something meaningful and challenging, something that we because we are meaning based creatures, we are not uh, to borrow from, you know, borrow from Michael Mead, one of my very favorite people on the planet. We are not homo sapiens. We are homo symbolicus. We are meaning based creatures. So if we can find something that is just intrinsically meaningful in our lives to do that and rock it. And it should also be challenging that kind of that confluence space. I'm doing making two little circles, almost like a Venn diagram, um, that confluence space between meaning and challenge. We win. Like if somebody really loves mountain climbing, it might be a pain in the butt to get to the mountain on the weekend. It would be a lot easier just to stream through Netflix and lay in bed. And maybe that's an okay thing to do. Uh, But if we really don't reach quota on hitting the mountain regularly, and sometimes we'll be on the mountain and it'll be rainy and we'll be having a crappy day. um, And, you know, our lactic acid is building up and we're asking ourselves, why did I even get into this? Usually at the end of that challenge, whatever it might be, it could be cycling, it could be running, it could be hiking, anything. um, At the end of it, we say, wow, wasn't that awesome? And that is rejuvenating. And we have that experience of that meaning and challenge. Um, And we can get it at work. Um, One of my favorite tools came out of the University of Pennsylvania. It was a way to accurately find what our top uh, strengths are. And um, there are 24 kind of ubiquitous strengths that were defined by an interdisciplinary group of social scientists and that were valued all throughout time, throughout region, throughout religion. Um, they include things like the love of learning. They include things like, um, like gratitude. If we can find ways to rock our strengths in novel ways, we will be re- rejuvenated. That's probably the easiest way to go. Um, if you go uh, over to, um, I believe it's uh, VIA, um, uh, well, just type in values in action um, inventory. Um, I'm forgetting the exact uh, domain, but there's a free 20 minute uh, inventory you can take to find out what are your top five and what are your bottom five and everything in between from the 24. And if you can find novel ways to really rock your strengths, uh, that's a really good place to look for something that we in the field called flow. Flow is, again, the byproduct of meaning and challenge. So if you can find something meaningful and challenging, uh, you will you will find rejuvenation. And the places to look for it are, are omnipresent. I mean, you can find it at work. You can find it off work. You can find it within your family. Um, you can find it within a hobby. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, there's an endless source of delights if you're willing to do it. I, I'm just going to give one last. I can't help myself. Okay. So I come, I didn't know about this idea. I just read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I had just come back from Japan where I was incredibly overpaid for my skills. And I was in graduate school first round. I'm 24 years old and I'm a bank teller. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the dumb, I just don't like it. Uh, People treat me like meat and I'm not, I'm not hating on bank tellers. I think bank tellers are great. Um, 
but I positively hated being a bank teller. I was making less money than I was used to making. Uh, I was being treated like not so great. And then I read Victor Frankl's search for meaning. I thought, how do I make my eight hour shift meaningful? And I thought, what if I make the 120 people I see? Cause I saw 120 people during my eight hour shift. What if I made 99% of them laugh? What if I could be funny or at least make them smile, if not laugh and have a meaningful exchange with 120, you know, demographically vastly different people, because it could be somebody who was a soccer mom. It could be a judge. It could be someone who was homeless. You never knew who you were going to see. It could be someone who spoke English as a second language and just recently arrived. What if I could make them smile? What if I could make them laugh during the transaction and still balance at the end of the day? And I began to love my shifts because it became meaningful and challenging. And ultimately, I would say being a bank teller was possibly the best and most important job I ever had because it served as my dojo, my training grounds for being able to deal with people from very, very different backgrounds. Um, and I'm still to this day grateful for that experience. So that would be. Wow. That's a great great example of that i mean it just puts it it just really puts the responsibility on on us right to frame frame our our moments right or work whatever it is right or whether with our family i mean it's it's quite the responsibility we ultimately have right i mean to be actually become conscious as much as possible what what how we're how we're orienting in any particular moment like are we What's our intention? Or is our intention to help this person smile? Or is it just to get through the day? I mean, right? Those are two completely different realities that we end up creating. I mean, it's, uh, it's wild. It's wild to think about how much or to consider how much, how much responsibility, how, how much is in our, uh, in our hands. Exactly. And we're, we're not even aware of all that is actually possible with our hands. And my experience as being a bank teller, which had been a formerly aversive job, is not unique. Uh, there are stories of single moms who uh, are food servers who hate, you know, with master's degree, but by virtue of, you know, childcare, they needed to be food servers hating their jobs and then coming around and loving their jobs because one of their skills is interpersonal and really enjoying the people that they serve. And lo and behold, uh, the shift goes by really quickly and the tips go up and uh, they're actually getting smarter uh, in, in an area that's deeply meaningful. So, I, I mean, I was getting smarter being a bank teller uh, while being right. paid. You know, It was great. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and I just see it as that, that puts you in, it, it, we're not arguing that you should just like adapt around something you ultimately isn't really your, your heart's calling, right? And yet, we all end up in different situations where there, there's certain kind of stepping stones, right? Um, yeah. And in order to actually, the, to actually increase the likelihood that you're going to step sooner than later, it's going to be best that you orient yourself in a way that's like you did in that, in that bank teller job. Like you're going to be able to, to step, to make the next step towards the next thing you're going to do in your life from a more, like a more, uh, 
uh, happy <laughs> mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, um, st- stronger place, centered place in yourself. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and it comes in that, that, that comes right from the core, super authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of getting that in the moment, you know, I mean, it's, it's in a sense, it's kind of like that, the art of a, the, the art of our lives, right. We, we, we all, we, we, we do, I mean, there's, there's no, it's just to be real. We, we end up in certain situations that, that we don't have a lot of control over, or they're just, they're, um, they're, they're interim experiences. And it is our task to creatively find a way to, um, to enjoy them or to learn from them. Yeah. And to make them meaningful. Yeah. Meaningful. And meaning, yeah. the opportunities for meaning are, is all around us. We just, to your point, you have to kind of at least start with curiosity. Uh, right. to find the meaning. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's a beautiful thing that we, if we can find, uh, find others that, uh, that we can, uh, collaborate with right if it's a men's group or our own partners oh, or friends, yeah really struggling i don't know i mean like i'm in this job right now i have to be just for this period of time like need some brainstorming here like how can i make this more meaningful how can i make this more enjoyable yeah this has been so fun adam right back at you ryan yeah yeah a lot of gems in there and uh We'll do up some show notes and get get some of these resources there available for people um, easily. And uh, any any closing words for for the people out there as they navigate one of the probably one of the most difficult years of their lives? Yeah, I would say to your point, take a step back and ask yourself during this really strange time which has not real in any way, shape or form been the opportunity any of us has wanted uh, with so many challenges, but it's the opportunity that we have. And to ask yourself to your point, you know, what, what, what is available? How can I in an authentic way embrace a part of who I am during this time? Uh, And how might the constraints of this time paradoxically be a benefit. Yeah. I think that's a question, question of our time right now, huh? Yeah. Yeah. In case, you know, um, you know, maybe you reach out to a friend that you haven't reached out to in some time via zoom. Maybe you start a podcast uh, like you and I did during this time. Uh, the constraints of this time really caused my podcast to come to light. Um, my children and I, you know, it, my sons would ordinarily be very far away. I get to hang out with them more and, uh, and pretty soon they'll be out of the house. So what are the, what, how can we really rock these constraints? That would be my thing. All right. Thanks for thanks for joining me today, Adam, and appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Take care, and uh, where can people find you? Just so you have they have a quick. Uh, oh, sure, uh, drAdamDorfay.com. That's D R A D A M Dradam D R A D A M D O R S A Y. A lot of people misspell it, like with the E Y, but it's more like the French Museum A Y. And uh, drAdamDorfay.com and 
uh, has access to my uh, Super Psych podcast, uh, my TEDx talk, and uh, some other podcasts I've been a guest on. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy to be of service. Okay. Thank you, Adam. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was Adam Dorsey. Uh, check him out at his, uh, he's got his great podcast. Um, really brings in some wonderful people in the world of, of psychology and big performance. And I love it myself. And come on over to uh, my Facebook page, page, Ryan Ginn Coaching. And it'd be great to just have your questions. We can explore them on Facebook Live and all that. And uh, got some more podcasts down, coming down the pipe that I think you'll enjoy. All right. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.